Well, good morning, Central Heights. So good to be with you this morning. As Jesse mentioned, we are in a series called Words That Change Your World. We're diving deeper into the Lord's Prayer. And if prayer is communicating with God, I mean, what could be more significant than learning how to do that better? A friend of mine understood that a number of years ago. He had been a pastor for a few years. His name is Dennis Fuqua. And he wanted to, he just had this yearning within him that he should pray more and learn how to pray better. And so in order to facilitate that, he made space for God. And he borrowed a motorhome. He went down to Gig Harbor, uh, just across the line in Washington, to a sort of remote area, and uh, just started to seek the Lord. In his book, he talks about it on the second day. In the morning, it happened. And he describes it as a download from above. It was like he could hear God speaking to him. It was more than just his own thoughts. And it went like this. He describes it in sort of three points. It was like, Dennis, I'm really glad you're, you're desiring this. This is a good desire that you have to learn to pray better. Secondly, my disciples had that desire, and they asked me the question, how to pray better. Thirdly, I gave them a pretty good answer back then, and I don't have a better one now. This was an aha moment for Dennis. He says in his book, I knew what he meant. If I was going to take prayer seriously, I need to pretend that the instruction that God gave his disciples 2,000 years ago was still valid for today, that he should treat the Lord's prayer as real prayer. Jesus said, pray this way. Pray like this. As you look at the Lord's Prayer, it occurs in the New Testament in a couple of different places. Uh, we find it in Matthew chapter 6, where we're focusing. Uh, it happens on the Sermon of the Mount. It's the largest body of teaching that we have that Jesus has given. In the middle of that, he instructs with his intention, uh, his disciples, those who are going to follow him, he instructs people how to pray. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, and then it goes on. In Luke, the situation is different. It appears to be a different time, a different place. The disciples, no doubt, are, are like they're in awe of Jesus' ministry. His teaching has authority. He does miracles. But they realize, I think, that this, um, the, the outward working of Jesus' life and his ministry comes from his prayer life, his communication with God, his Father. And so the question they do ask him is not how to preach, you know, how to do miracles. The question they do ask him is, Jesus, how do we pray? And imagine you're there with the disciples and Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And imagine the disciples looking at each other, wait a minute, we've heard this all before. Precisely would have been Jesus' point, precisely See, sometimes we're looking for something new. We're looking for the newest prayer of Jabez. Um, we're looking for a deeper understanding. Uh, that will be exciting. But sometimes we just need to look at what God has already given us and go deeper with it. If you were to ask today, God, how do I pray? How do I pray better? How do I learn prayer? Jesus would still say to us, pray like this, the Lord's Prayer. Words that still change your world. And I'd like to begin this morning by doing exactly that, praying. Would you join with me? Father, we come before you, and God, we, um, 
We have this time to listen to your word, to hear from it, and we are asking that our hearts would be open to receive what you want to speak to us, and we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would come and make your word alive in and through me and give us ready hearts to receive your word, and Lord, may you implant it so that it bears fruit today, tomorrow, this week, this month, and for eternity. We ask largely of you this morning in Jesus' precious name. The Lord's Prayer. So as you look at it, uh, it begins with the address, Our Father in Heaven. But having given that address, as Jesus instructs his disciples, he then goes into requests. And I think we would expect that of a prayer, right? Like for us, prayer is mostly asking God for things. So when you came here this morning, or if you're listening online right now, whatever's in your world at this moment, you probably have uh, an issue, an opportunity, a problem, something that really occupies your mind a lot. You know, it could be a relationship that's going sour. It could be your finances that are under pressure. Your business has taken a hit. You're worried about losing your teenage son, or you have this job opportunity, but it involves moving, and you want God's wisdom, and so that's on the top of your mind. And if you were to begin to pray, this is where you'd go first. You'd bring that before the Lord, and in prayer, you hope that he would address that as you talk to him. Jesus would start us off in a different way. And it's not that our needs don't matter to him. They matter a lot. But there's a priority as he instructs us. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Your greatest need isn't to have the things in your life fixed. Our, your, our world's greatest need is first of all that God's name would be hallowed. We get that right and then things fall into place right. The word hallowed means to set apart, uh, distinct. It means to hold as sacred. And to understand, I think, what that word means, it's best to look at how the Bible shows it to us in the show-and-tell story of God's word from Genesis to Revelation. As you see how people encounter the holiness, the presence of God, we begin to to form a proper understanding, a biblical understanding of what holiness really fleshes out like. In the, New, in the Old Testament, in the Torah, you see how God calls a family, Abraham and his family, and, and then they become a nation. So God calls this nation to be in relationship with him. He delivers this people group from the land of Egypt. They're in slavery for 400 years. God delivers them, draws them out into a wilderness, and there they're supposed to camp for a while while God, while God gives instructions to their leader, Moses, as to how they are now going to walk forward in a relationship with a God who is holy. And so in the middle of that, you have your favorite Bible uh, book that you read when you're going through a Bible reading plan through the year. It's called Leviticus. And you can't wait till you get there because there's all these you know, do this, do this, sacrifice this. You know, that blood has to be shed that way. It's all that. And, and, and this, this long protocol, and, and as you wade through it reading, you go, what is this about? Well, Philip Yancey says it's, it's like a protocol if you were pro- approaching a radioactive nuclear bomb. This is what you need to understand. Why they had to be so careful. We read in Leviticus chapter 16, uh, verse 2, where, where Moses tells Aaron who's the high priest, that he's not just supposed to enter into the presence of the Lord at any time. So here's what God had done. He'd instructed Moses around a tabernacle. This was going to be like the meeting place to meet with God. In that tabernacle, there's a holy place, but but beyond that, there's a smaller room called the the Holy of Holies. And there's a veil that, that keeps that room blocked off. And inside that veil is this wooden ark 
covered in gold and with a, what they call the mercy seat on top of it. And, and God says, I will, my presence will be manifest because God fills the world. He fills, he's everywhere, right? His presence is everywhere. But my manifest presence will be there above that ark, above the mercy seat. And once a year, and only once a year, the high priest, not the whole nation, one person only, the high priest who set himself apart and through blood and sacrifice made himself ready uh, for the whole nation, represent them, and once a year come to my presence. That's what the ark represented, the presence of God. Sacred, holy, only one person once a year after this long protocol. Fast forward a little bit, the nation of Israel, you know, they've entered into the promised land, but they've kind of forgot God. And it's so bad that the priesthood is corrupt. There's a priest named Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They are just doing atrocious things. They're, they're stealing the meat from themselves that people have brought for sacrifice. They're sleeping with the women who are serving at the temple. And, and God has been patient and patient and patient, but then he's had enough. And so one of the enemies of Israel, the Philistines, they gain, engage in battle and the Philistines win. And, and Israel thinks, this shouldn't be happening. What should we do? How can we win this battle? And oh yeah, I know what we can do. Let's get the presence of God with us. So they grabbed the ark and they, and they saw it not as a relationship, as a, as a tool of relationship. They saw it as something magical. Like sometimes we can think our prayers are just something magical, but it, it was meant to be a relationship with God that was holy and sacred. They take that ark and they bring it with them into battle and they lose. And the Philistines take this ark. But it's rather humorous if you read what happens in 1 Samuel in chapters 4, 5, 6. Um, because wherever the ark is in their city, the people are afflicted with tumors. How would you like to have that ark in your city? Bring it to Abbotsford. It's like the Stanley Cup. They bring it from one place to another. Let's bring the ark to our place and then people will get sick. And they'd have tumors. So finally the Philistines figure it out and say, hey, we got to get rid of this thing. And so they send it back to Israel on a cart with two milking cows. And they say, if those milking cows go straight to Israel, then surely this was God that has afflicted us. But if they don't, then it was just a coincidence. And so they put the ark on the cart and they watch. And these two cows, even though they have calves waiting for them, they go. They don't turn to the right or left. They go to Israel and they... They reach a place called Beth Shemesh, and the people there can't, they see it coming. Here is that ark representing the presence of God coming to us, and they celebrate, yahoo, and they slaughter the cows and sacrifice, and it should be a glorious day, except in the verses that follow, we understand that 70 people died that day because they did not hold God's ark, which represented his presence, as sacred, as distinct as holy. They looked into it and they died. And they said, who can stand in the presence of a holy God? Fast forward and David has become king and he wants to bring the ark into Jerusalem because it's been in the outskirts. And so they have this great celebration. They're dancing and there's a festivity and they've brought the ark in on a cart and, and, and they're having a great big party and, and as the oxen that are pulling the cart come towards the city, they stumble a bit and it looks like the ark might tip over and so a guy named Uzzah touches the ark to steady it. Good intentions, right? And he dies because he's broken the protocol. And once again, everybody is hushed with the, with the understanding of the sacredness, the holiness of God and the need to be careful and to do things God's way and not their own.
And as you look at different lives in the Old Testament and in the New, God's chosen servants who have the privilege of getting close to God, up front and close. And we see Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 having this vision of the glory of God. And what happens to him? He comes undone. He says, woe is me. We see Ezekiel getting a picture of the glory of God and it says he fell on his face. We see John in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, having a vision of the Son of God and it says he fell at, at the feet of Jesus as if dead. Holy, sacred, distinct. Jesus said, when you pray, our Father in heaven, pray, hallowed be your name. Now, name for us usually uh, stands for uh, an identity marker. You know, you, you're talking about somebody in general terms, and then you ask, well, who was that? The name helps you to identify that person. And that can be a really good thing. It immediately clears up things. But it depends on what your name is. So I lived in Vancouver for a number of years, and I, my name is Tim Clausen. Okay, if we've never met, great, thank you, good to meet you. My name is Tim Clausen. In Vancouver, that's, that's not a, that usual uh, a name. The last name is not that common. But then you move to, to Abbotsford, and you realize that you're just one of a multitude. I am personally aware of three Tim Clausens. This morning when I came to church in this region, I was aware of three Tim Clausens. After the first service, I'm now aware of four. And, and uh, one of those is in my own church, and one of them is apparently dating a young girl, but that was not me, okay? Like a 20-something, 30-something-year-old. Somebody came up to me and said, I asked this guy a question. He said, and she said, I'm dating Tim Clausen. And then he said, whoa, just a minute. No, no, so... So a name, a name can be an identity marker, but it's, a name can also mean much more than that. We understand that when we talk about making a name for yourself. That, that begins to touch on what the, the Bible is usually referring to when it's talking about a name. We're talking about reputation. At home, I have these files. Um, I'm a, I'm a bit of a sentimental guy, and so I have these files at home of my kids. They have their names on them, and I think I, I have more than one file per kid. But over the years, as, as things have happened in their life, I've kept them, and I've put them in the file. Um, really cool things, like uh, things they've achieved, accomplished, and I went through one of them last night, and I was just... I was just reminded, oh yeah, I can't, you know, she did that. Oh yeah, she achieved that. It was really cool. And went through that, and... Um, I mean, even uh, dental mold. I mean, why would you keep a dental mold? It's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, that was, your, that was your mouth when you were seven years old. So my point is that the name on the file is just a name. It helps identify. But it's what's in the file that represents that person. And so we think of when we think of name, we're thinking of the character, the, the attributes, we're thinking of the activity, all that represents. We're thinking of the person. Jesus says, Hallowed be your name. What we're saying is we want God's person to be held sacred, different, separate. That's what we're praying. Now Jesus came from heaven. And let's remember the modifying phrase in the Lord's Prayer is on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we should be thinking on earth as it is in heaven. Where Jesus came from, the unseen world, 
And, and we get a bit of glimpse into that unseen world, not so much from Jesus' words, but from John in the book of Revelation. Because John is given these visions of the unseen realm. And as we look at that, we get a glimpse at to what, how do people respond when they have this sort of unfiltered look view of God. And here's what we read. If you want to join me in Revelation, starting in chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, it says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, so they can see everywhere, everything, all the time. And what, what do those that have, have amazing vision, what do they do? Day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. John sees more in Revelation chapter 5, verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. In Revelation chapter 11, we read how they give honor and glory to God, not just for his mercy and grace, but also for his judgments and his wrath. They say in, in verse 16, and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and is for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple There were flashes of lightning and rumblings, peals of thunder and earthquake, and heavy hail. John gives us a glimpse as people see in the heavenlies that they can't but worship and fall on their faces in adoration as they hold God's sacred, distinct, separate, other, hallowed, be your name. Now what's amazing about this is Jesus has just taught us to pray our Father. Our Father in heaven. How amazing. See, by showing us that we can address God as Father, this does not diminish God's transcendent holiness. That would be subtraction. What it does is it adds to the wonder of this amazing privilege that we can approach God through prayer. It doesn't take away, it adds. And it adds to the wonder because when you think about it, when you think of how holy God is and the picture that scripture paints of his distinctness, the fact that we could approach him could never be accomplished or achieved by our own doing. So all of scripture points to the point in the story where God will make it possible for not just one person to enter once a year, but for all the nations, for all people, whoever will believe in Jesus can approach God as their father. And Jesus accomplished that through the cross. See, this is why the crucifixion and the resurrection is the center of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because as Jesus hung on that cross and the sky went black and the wrath of God is poured out on his son, we're told that the veil 
is rent in two. A way has been made through the precious, sacred, holy blood of Jesus Christ for all those who will believe in him to access in prayer, in privilege, the very throne room of God who becomes their father as he adopts them as his children. Does that not make you want to worship? Does that not make you want to fall on your faces and adore him and praise him? You see, intimacy with God does not diminish reverence, it magnifies it. They are not polar opposites. They are the inevitable outcome of getting close to God and realizing this privilege that we have with God who is not safe but extremely perfectly good. And we see that those who know God understand this. In fact, the the greatest example that we have of this intertwining of reverence and intimacy is in Jesus Christ himself. The Son of God communing with his Father in Hebrews chapter 5. This is what it tells us about Jesus. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, speaking of his Father. And Jesus was heard because of what? Because of his reverence. Because of his reverence. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And you begin to be in wonder of who God is and what he's done for us and this access that we have through Jesus and his sacrifice for us. There begins to be a bit of an angst, a concern over our world because as we look around us, we can see in so many places God's name is not hallowed, it's desecrated. And that begins to bother us. Telford Work, who's written a book on the Lord's Prayer, talks about how in in Western intellectualism, how in the last couple centuries, the attack on God has been as as bad as it's been since the Roman world in the first century. And he talks about, if you studied philosophy or psychology, people like Freud, where God was just like an overbearing parent, um, you know, a, a product of imagination for people who were insecure and needed a father to look after them. Uh, Ludwig uh, Feuerbach, who uh, was, God was human, and this whole concoction of, of humanity's mind takes away from the potential of human beings and just ascribes to them poverty. Marx was influenced by him, and so for Marx, this was the concoction of the powerful and strong so they could manipulate the weak and the workers so that they could promise them paradise if they worked well and hell if they didn't. Not to mention the the current new atheists like uh, Dawkins and um, Harris or Hitchens who's no longer living. As as work talks about this, he begins to sound like like a psalmist. He says, why doesn't God do something about his name? If God does not bother to count the flood of bigotry, he says, indifference and distortion, why should I? Why should anyone? Can God care about our reputations when God does not care about his own? Sounds like a psalmist when God seems nowhere to be seen. Or even in Revelation where the souls have been put to death because of their faith cry out, oh Lord, how long? But we see in this plan of God that 
that God is merciful and gracious. He's not willing that any should perish. And so he could make everything right right now. He could fix everything in the moment. But when he does, it's over. And God is, God is giving opportunity for people to come to him now. He has an economy of time. He works according to a plan. And in that plan, though, he still wants his name to be hallowed on earth. And he will answer the prayers of his people and work with them as they do So as I think about this, it's not just to have angst about, God, your name be hallowed in the world, but also is God's name hallowed in me, in my own life, in my church, my own church family? Is God's name hallowed there? You know, I would never uh, defame God, discredit him uh, the way people have, but if if my view, if my concept of God is too small and my conversation about him is too small, in a way I've diminished his holiness. I haven't magnified him the way he deserved to be magnified. I'm not hallowing him. I'm not pointing to his greatness and awesomeness. I'm diminishing him. Hallowed be your name. Counselor, um, pastor, uh, Paul David Tripp, um, wrote a book called Awe, and I keep going back to this book the last few years because I think he's really struck a chord. He says, we in the church have an awe problem. Our problems aren't what we usually represent as our problems. If you go deeper, he says, they're they're a problem. We haven't got the name of God right. We're not seeing God right. We've got an awe problem. He says, you can see it on how we respond to things. So if we find ourselves complaining, what, what does that say? What does it say about our understanding, the the presence of of God in our minds and what he's done for us, the riches that Jesus has made available to us? We've lost the awe of that, and so instead of seeing that in all its grandeur, we've focused on on a problem or a situation, and we complain, we complain, we complain. We've lost our awe of God. He said, if we find ourselves fearful, it's because we've lost the awe. We, we've lacked courage because we, we failed to see the, the power and the majesty of the God who promises to be with us, in us, and through us. If we find ourselves angry because situations aren't working the way we wanted them to. He says, we've lost the awe of God. We thought the world should be all about us. We've become self-focused rather than focused on the hallowedness of our Lord and Savior. Tripp says, the more you lose the sight of the centrality of God's awesome presence and grandeur, the more you will focus on yourself. So when we pray, our Father, hallowed be your name, we need to realize that we're asking God, hallowed be your name, not just out there. Hallowed be your name here in my church. And let it begin with me. Let your name be hallowed in me. Tripp says whether it's the worship service, the children's lesson, the small group, the sermon itself, each must share the central goal of holding the awesome glory of the works of the Lord before his people once again. God intends every moment of ministry to inspire awe of himself in his people. This is what we're about. It begins personally and then it works out into us as a community of faith, calling ourselves a church, Central Heights. And in our church, one of our um, 
tenets of our playing field. We have this playing field which helps us define, you know, what are we about? What are our values? What is our mission? What is our daily activity? But in that, there's also a side to our playing field we call our culture. What is the kind of culture that we want to um, work towards here in our church? And at the very top of that, we've said we want to pursue God's glory. Everything we're about, all that we do, whether we eat or drink, we want it to be for God's glory. We want his name to be hallowed. Let it be hallowed in this place. And we're saying we're going to pursue it, that we're going to be passionate about this. This comes right out of the Lord's Prayer. Because when Jesus says, hallowed be your name, you need to understand, in the original language, how it's written, it starts really, your name It must be hallowed. It's an imperative passive. In other words, there's an urgency. There's a fervency. It's almost like we're telling God what to do. But in the passive, it's saying, God, this has got to happen, but only you can make it happen. God, would you please hallow your name? And we're passionate for this. You see this with corporate companies, the big ones. They are especially passionate about a name. So when a, uh, when a business starts, they come up with a name for the corporation. Then they uh, develop logo and they build a brand <clears throat> so that everything is consistent with that brand. And so if some, another company, uh, no matter how big or small you are, sometimes even a little mom paw shop, you know, a, a big company will find out they've infringed on their brand. They've copied a phrase of their, one of their jingles or their logo looks too similar to the, the logo of that corporation. And they'll take them to court. Why? Because they're passionate to keep that brand set apart. And that's what we're to be like a hundred times more with God's name. God I want your name to be held as sacred. Hallowed be your name. So how do we make this happen? You're here today. Maybe you're walking with God. Maybe you're not. We can be all over the map in our relationship with God through Jesus here this morning. You hear God's word. You, you, you hear this This calling to enter into the way of Jesus. And as we pray these things, of course we have to live these things. You can't be, you can't, you can't do, you can't pray and not live it. That that there's no integrity with that. So it's calling us. We we understand as we as Jesus teaches us to pray this, it's also inviting us to live this way. And yet I come here and you know, I know my, my heart sometimes there's all kinds of affections, other places. And you know, the last thing I prayed, like when when was the last time I ever prayed? God, your name be hallowed. When was the last time I was concerned about God's name being hallowed way more than my own needs, as important as those things are? Like, how do we get to that place? I'm just going to suggest two things. The first of all is repent. The first step is repent. In the Old Testament, when when God spoke to his children and they had... um, They'd not kept God in the right place. He would send his prophets to them and they would call them to repent. Repent is simply like a religious term for turning. Turn, you need to turn back. 
There can't be mixture in our relationship with God where, where our esteem and our awe of an NFL running back is almost on par with our, our esteem and our awe with God, where we think so much about you know, something else. It, it, it occupies more of my thoughts than God. I'm never going to get to that place where I have this passion for his glory and his honor until I begin to push these other things away. So I turn from those things. I repent from those things, and I move towards God. That's the first step. The second step is is to pray. Huh, it's right here. Pray. To ask God to do things that you can't do. To work in my heart, to to change my thinking, to bring to my mind thoughts that will help me to think about his grandeur and to be concerned about his glory. So I pray. But it's not the end there. See, God always works in partnership with us, and we see this even in the Lord's Prayer. God works, we work. God works, we work. So Jesus said, pray, hallowed be your name. And by prayer, we're admitting that there's something here that only God can do. But the fact that Jesus has told us to pray this tells us there's something for us to do. It's how God works. He works, we work. He works in partnership with our activity. So we repent, we turn, we come to God. We pray, and then we simply give space, just like Dennis did when he took that motor home and he went to Gig Harbor. Gig Harbor. Now, yours doesn't have to be that radical, but I'm going to suggest that we need to regularly have times where we make space for God in places that are unhurried, where you can, as it were, just look at him. You can gaze on him in prayer and through his word and spend time with him. You know, how often have I talked to couples, they've been married for a while, they've got kids now. Before they got married, I mean, they had this vibrant dating life, they were thrilled with one another, so excited to be together. They got married, they had kids, things got tired, life got busy, and it's like, ah, like, do we even like each other anymore? I think we do. What do they need to do? They need to remove themselves from the busyness and the clutter and actually date one another again and spend time together where you're looking at each other in the eyes and you're hearing one another in, in communication without all the noise. See, this, this is what it takes. We can be talking to God throughout the day all the time, but I'm convinced that unless we make sacred space for sacred conversation with God, we won't get to the place where God wants us to get to. In that light, A.W. Tozer said, progress in the Christian life is exactly equal to the growing knowledge we gain of the triune God in personal experience. And such experience requires a whole life devoted to it and plenty of time spent at the holy task of cultivating God, having that appointment, talking, listening, conversing. God can be known satisfactorily only as we devote time to him. Lastly, I think we make space for God, not just in our individual time for him, by coming together with brothers and sisters in Christ that are going to encourage you in your faith, where corporately, together, we look at the face of God. We hear his word, and we're again reminded, as we remind each other, that God is holy, sacred, set apart. Pray then like this, Jesus said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Would you join me as I close in prayer? I'm just going to give us a moment to um, 
just for you to begin to converse with God. And if there's something in your life you want to say, hey, God, uh, I've given way too much attention to this thing, this person, this situation in my life. And right now, Lord, I just want to repent of that. I ask you to forgive me. And, and I'm coming to you, Lord. I want to give myself fully to you, devoted. Um, just bring that before the Lord. Now I want you just to receive his forgiveness. This is what Jesus, part of what Jesus died for, that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Receive his cleansing, receive his, his freedom, his life in you. That's um, what he came to give you. Father, I thank you for your grace that has been extended to us through your son, Jesus. God, we've been reminded again this morning that you are holy, holy, holy. And yet, Lord, we can come calling you Abba, our Father. Lord, we want to do that with reverence, with fear, honor, respect, Lord, but with great intimacy and devotion. How amazing, Lord, that all this could go together. I'm praying, Lord, for us as a church, for the individuals, and, and for us as a corporate church, and for our city. Lord, I'm praying that your glorious, beautiful name would be hallowed in our lives, in our hearts, Lord. I pray you'd break through in new ways in our innermost being, Lord, and that it would expand and flow out from our, our personal lives to each other, Lord, that our conversations wouldn't just be about temporal things, Lord, but be about you and reminding each other, Lord, of your glory. And then, Lord, would that spill out into our community as your name is hallowed, would your kingdom come, your will be done, not just among our little, our little group, but, Lord, in our city in our nation, and in our world. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Amen.